before we get into it, I'm just going to ask the Lord's blessing on the on His Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, do just come before you. I ask your blessing upon your Word, that it would be your Word, your truth, and that we would accept it gratefully. And and we do pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's begin here in in kind of the tail end of the cha- uh, chapter eight. Get into how I'm not I'm not big on poetry. I don't mean by you know to, uh, negatively. It just it's it's a different type of literary form that I've never fully appreciated. But there are certain poems I've always enjoyed. I suppose like many they they kind of grab you. They 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 stick out. And and one of them is one of the probably more well known ones. Many of you probably even know it uh, quite well. Could even uh, recite it. It's called the Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. It says, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there had warned them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden, bl- trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I think like many it does, it grabs you. That idea of a road less traveled. Taking that with some level of fear and trepidation, not knowing where it will go, not knowing what may come about as you travel down it. And some have taken those roads and been able to look back and yes, I didn't follow the crowd. I didn't go the way well-trodden. I took the road less traveled. And that's made a world of difference. That poem almost comes to me. When I come to this passage, this was one that stood out to me. And I can't say exactly why, perhaps, because the idea of that we see here in the Lord, again, saying that phrase that we've seen him use other times earlier, in his ministry, follow me. That call to follow. That call to join on a journey. Tugged at my heart. Early on after I got saved. And this verse, this passage is one that stood out to me. Hearing that call. Follow me. I always enjoyed that. I always enjoyed a journey. I don't know about you. I like going places. <laughs> Even though up until... The funny thing is that... I, or I find funny. I did, rarely did much traveling. I traveled a few places before I got saved. And I always enjoyed them. Road trips to the West Coast, to the East. Seeing new sights, eating new foods. We won't go into that. I think you know how I feel about it. <laughs> Seeing, meeting new people, all of that. 
there's a level of excitement, for me at least, of travel, of journey. But part of it there is that fear, because you don't know what you're going to find on that journey. You don't know what may be waiting for you. As we come to this passage, we come to verse 34. Probably could have backed up in our reading uh, uh, to gain a little context. I didn't think of that, but you think many of you remember where we were the last time. The Lord first begins to teach and preach about his eminent death, burial, and resurrection. The first time he began to speak publicly about it, telling his disciples what was about to befall him soon. And even uh, if I find this interesting, shortly after that, it seems that it was fairly shortly after that. Again, had he been, had been, they had been journeying up to Caesarea Philippi, north of the, of the Sea of Galilee, up near Mount Hermon. Now, if I'm correct, it's one of the only mountains, if perhaps the mountain in that region, in that area, that has either a year-round snow cap on it. I don't know exactly, but I think you know, it may come and go, but it's one of the highest peaks in the region, and between Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, all those. I think it is pretty what creates the headwaters of the Sea of Galilee, River Jordan, and ultimately to the Dead Sea. And they were going up there. And we don't want to get ahead of the story. I know most of you know already what's going to take place as he goes a little further in the next chapter. I find it interesting at this point, this is where he begins to expound upon the cross. And it is in this passage where he actually uses it for the first time. I won't get there, but he begins in verse 34. In verse 34, he says, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples. Right there, this statement, he called the people to himself. So he almost even gives the idea that at first we think from the last part, from the previous verses just ahead, that it was just the Lord and the disciples, just his 12 guys. Well, this seems to indicate that either there was a bigger group or people caught up to him. The people. Now, this is one of those words in translation that, you know, they kind of mix words, different words, but when you go back into the Hebrew, it, or I mean the Greek, it's the same word that we often see, the multitude. The multitude. How often in the Lord's earthly ministry, the multitude, the crowds. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get this idea that, it was, that often, I'm sure it was at times, it was just the Lord and the disciples traveling around, you know, kind of all isolated by themselves. I get the feeling a lot of times that there were a lot of stragglers <laughs> hanging around following after him, tailing along. I mean, who wouldn't? It's Jesus of Nazareth. What's he going to do next? I don't know. It's going to be interesting. But he calls the people, the people. The... I find it interesting, too, that, uh, that, that, that word, that when you look at it, when I looked it up, the definition is, you know, a disorganized throng. How would you like to be known as a group of your disorganized throng? The rabble. The rabble. The masses. It's often, too, sometimes they call it a rabble rouser. I never thought about that much. Someone who, you know, rouses the rabble, the common people. 
was the leader of the rabble? The masses, the people. Interesting too about what he's about to teach. He's not going to just keep to the disciples. He wants everyone to know. He's going to expound it to the, the, to the group, to the masses, the, the, to the people, to this large gathering. We're not told how many. But it must have been considerable to use such a term. But this is too, what he says there, he says he called them to himself. He called the people to himself, to him. And even that, you could dwell with there just the idea that Jesus is calling people to himself. The reality of that, the depth of that, the relationship of that. Calling them to him. Often he does that. He's calling people to himself. Not to an idea, not to an ideology, to himself. Because who he always calls people to. To him. Now maybe I'm making too much of a simple statement. And he called the people to himself. He's just calling them to gather around. But I always think there's more depth to the word of God and to what the Lord Jesus Christ says than I'll ever be able to give him credit for. Because Jesus is calling. Whether he's out there a thousand years ago calling the rabble to himself to expound upon the cross, or even right now, through his word, Jesus is calling and calling people to himself. What he's going to call them to, he's calling them to the cross. Just kind of jump right out there and say that. Because what does he say here as we go on in verse 34? Called them to himself with his disciples also. He said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny and take up his cross and follow me. Again, this invitation wasn't just to the twelve, wasn't just to the few chosen, just to everybody. To the whole group, to the whole people, whoever could hear it, follow me. Come. Come with me. And he's going to lay out this road ahead. I'm on the journey. He's on the journey to the cross. He's calling people to come with him. Both physically and spiritually. Come with me. Come with me. And Jesus lays out the road ahead. I find this very, like I say, exciting, daunting, as it were. As he kind of says, well, this is what it's going to be like. If you're going to follow me. This is what you're in for, so to speak. He says, whoever desires to come after me, let him desire, deny himself. First, the desire. Whoever desires to come. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, if you have a desire, Come. You know, often we come, sometimes use the, 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 the word, the idea of a desire in the negative aspect. The desire for something. But there is a positive and a good side to desire. It's not wrong to desire that which is good. You keep your finger in, keep your finger, you like to turn to 1 Timothy. Chapter 3. 
just read verse 1 of that. First, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. If you desire that, it is good. It's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong to desire that which is good. That word desire, it stresses to will, to wish, implying volition and purpose. To be resolved, determined. It's a matter of the will. How often that comes to the point of decision. Are you going to follow Jesus Christ or not? Are you willing? Jesus said of the disciples on the... the (laughs) In the garden, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And how often we can be of the same mind. We can be so excited to follow, wanting, you know, stirred with emotions. Yes! But I got things to do, you know. I got to cut the lawn. I got to do this, do that. We saw that in the past with the Lord. We talked about the rich young ruler wanted to follow him. I said, I have much to do. The Lord said, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Willingness, a desire, a desire to follow the Lord. And that road does, the road to follow the Lord, the road to the cross, and through it begins with a desire, a willingness. Are you willing? That's the first step. Take another. The next thing the Lord says after that, says, let him deny himself and take up his cross. He must deny himself. So many fathers would would paint a picture of self-fulfillment, as it were. Follow me and all your dreams will be met listing all the things you may get and receive if you do so. The Lord says, no. You must deny yourself. Following the Lord is is one of self-denial, not self-fulfillment. And even then, that runs contrary to human nature just as much as it did then as it does today. Self-fulfillment, that's what you want. Reach your greatest potential today. Have all your dreams met today. You deserve it. That's not what the Lord says. That's not what the gospel preaches. Deny yourself. Self-denial. Because teaches that the road to the cross, the road to follow him is not one of comfort and ease. Well, he's not a good salesman, is he? <laughs> Think about it. Oh, tell me, you know, all the places we're going to stay. You know, on the trip, to, you know, to the land of Israel that BBI is taking. What kind of hotels are they? Five star, four star? You know, what kind of places are we going to eat? Is it going to be, you know, a, you know, five star restaurants? What kind of accommodations are we looking at, Lord? Well, we're talking, you know, sleeping on the ground, maybe a rock for a pillow kind of situation. I was like, wait, what? 
Is that hyperbole? What's he talking about? It can't be real. Not difficulty. Hardship. Struggles. I like the Lord doesn't mince words. He doesn't, he puts it all right out there. If you're going to come, this is what you're looking for. This is what you're in for. Are you in? Are you in or are you out? Deny yourself. And take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross. This is the first time Jesus actually mentions the cross by name in his earthly ministry. Now, again, it's been well said, and we could spend much time looking at the Old Testament scriptures about the cross and the reality of the cross and how often it was preached and taught about through the law and the prophets. And Jesus makes mention of that as well. But this is the first time he spells it out. Again, for the masses, for the people, for the multitude. And again, this would have been a familiar instrument to them, an instrument of capital punishment, and death. And this wouldn't have been like, huh? What's he talking about? Cross. What's that? They would have known. They would have known exactly what he was talking about. And there was a, a long history of instruments like this. Some said, you know, the, the, you know, there was the Persians, the Babylonians, used, and Assyrians used just vertical stakes in the ground by which to torment people to death, to carry out punishment. It's been said that the Romans perfected it. You know, kind of like, uh, you know, kind of get the, uh... sorry, just thinking of the word, <laughs> to be able to do it quickly, easily, you know, en masse, so to speak. Been well known what the cross was. Instrument of death and torture. Well, if you didn't have them before at the hardship of self-denial, boy, he's really winning people over right now. Pick up your cross? What does he mean? Death? Suffering? Not my kind of party. It's interesting. Once, and how often that is used in the negative too. We use that like some people will often talk about their cross to bear. Whatever situation or experiences they're going through in life, things that they need to do, well, it's just my cross to bear. Use those almost as a negative way to express mere duty, obligation. I don't ever see the Lord speaking of it in a negative way. Difficult, daunting even. I mean, the very fact that he was in the garden just before praying and sweating drops of blood, asking the Father if there's any other way, let it pass. But he never talked about it in a negative way or a derogatory way. Because it was determined. Sorry, I lost my way for lost my place for a moment. You see, part of me, while many people talk about it in, in somewhat of a, a negative way, whether they mean to or not, what I think here most often is the Lord is talking about one's calling, one's ministry, so to speak. 
pick that up, to carry that. Because what was the cross to the Lord? It was his calling. It's why he came. It was his ministry, his purpose. Now, we are not all called to go be a martyr. (laughs) Some have. But everyone is called to a purpose. Everyone is called to some form of ministry. Whether formal, as up here preaching and teaching, or going to a foreign field, whether it's husband to wife, wife to husband, parent to child. That's a calling. That's a ministry. And that is something you take up. Not regretfully, not shamefully, purposefully, determinedly, lovingly. Because that's the way the Lord carried it. Because the cross was where he was going to show his great love for the world. And turn to Romans 5, 8. Where he says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was going to the cross not out of obligation or duty, but out of love. Out of love. And that is the same character, the same aspect, the same manner by which he calls us to carry our cross, our calling, our purpose, our ministry. Lovingly, determinedly, purposefully. This is the path. This is the way. This is the journey he's calling people to. He says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. And follow me. Follow me. If you're willing, if you're on board, if you understand what you're in for, let's go. He's looking for followers. I love this word. Looking at this word too, it seems so simple. And really it is. It's the kind of thing we like to muddle up because we kind of look for loopholes (laughs) and what we're signing up for. But the idea here, follower, expresses union, likeness. Follow me. Walk in the manner that I walk. Live in the manner that I lived. We are called to be Christ-like in our lives. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I think what he's calling us to do here is literally to be imitators of him. Imitate me in life. Live as I did. You know, that popular phrase that sometimes can get, I don't know, misused at times, but WWJD. What would Jesus do? I think it's applicable. There are things that only the Lord can do. So often of our lives, what would Jesus do? What would he have me do in this situation? Follow him is the call. But he doesn't just call people 
to the journey, call people on the road to the cross and beyond. He spells out the cost. What's it going to cost people? Again, if he didn't illustrate it enough that there's going to be hardship rather than comfort, difficulty rather than ease, he elaborates. Beginning in verse 35. Saying, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He does explain that there is a cost to the cross. There is a cost to following Christ. And again, we see desire at work here. But this time it's more in the negative. There's a loss versus gain. Trying to save one's life. Why is it a bad thing? I mean, you know, the, the life, the preservation, self-preservation is the strongest human drive. You ask anyone, you'll do whatever you have to to save your own skin if need be. Is that a bad thing? Is that wrong? No. And there's more to it here than that. There's more to what the law is talking about. He's not just talking about, you know, if you're about to be killed, take the hit. There may be times for that. And there may be times to be called to lose one's life for the gospel. Literally, one's life. And people have throughout the centuries. But part of it is, is the idea of holding on. Trying to hold on to something that is impossible to keep. Too, as we follow the Lord in his manner, Jesus was willing to lay down his life. How could we do anything else but be willing to do the same? See, only by letting go do we actually gain. You see, so much of life, even whether it was back in his day when he was on the earth or today, so much of life in people's pursuit of life is to gain, to have, to get more of, to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, to make a name for themselves. Ultimately, he's trying even to find out who they are. I love the Lord's God in this, to deny yourself. For in by the denying, you will gain. And you know me well enough, there, there, there's definitely a movie quote coming in here, so I'll throw it in. Again, as I say, most of the time, many of the movies I quote is not a, a validation to go watch them. There's just simple acknowledgement of my past and what I've seen. There's a movie called Point Break with Keanu Reeves, and it's a surfer movie. It's, well, whatever. But there's a line in it when there's a part where the two main characters are talking about surfing. And Patrick Swayze plays the one. He's a, he's a, a criminal. And we don't know that yet in the movie. But he's telling Keanu about surfing and his so-called spiritual aspect of it. Telling him it is where you lose yourself and where you find yourself. No. No. Christ is where you will lose yourself and find yourself. 
And we think of that today. And all that's going on and all the questions that we see going on. Not only do people are confused and trying to find out who they are, they don't know what they are. That a world could be so lost that they would question these things. But Christ says, I'll provide that answer. And you'll gain it more than you could ever know. And he goes on, though, to explain the worthlessness and futility of trying to hold on to this life. Have you ever had something that you thought was valuable only to find out it wasn't? You know, maybe been a contestant on, you know, Antiques Roadshow or something, I don't know. Nothing too dramatic. I, I, one time I found it, discovered it, I had an Indian penny from 1894. And I thought, that's got to be worth something. It is. Buck 22. <laughs> yeah, we're not retiring early yet, are we? No. But then again, it's over a 100% increase in value. I mean, any investor would take that in spades every time. <laughs> yeah. No. You see, 100% of nothing is nothing. And ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, in the light of eternity, this life isn't worth anything. And that may be hard for some people to accept and acknowledge because there are some beautiful things in this life and things worth living. But compared to eternity, nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. Again, as he says there, he who seeks to gain will lose, but he who loses will gain. While the world in this life, in the whole, this world... <laughs> this life is worthless. He goes on to what is truly priceless. It's truly priceless. Think about it. We live in a society that is, for all intents and purposes, run by the free market. As it were. Capitalism. Yay! For all its good and negative. We should be we understand that something only has as much value or worth as someone is willing to pay for it. I'm sure we've all been there. You've seen news reports of someone, so-and-so pays $18 million for, you know, some movie vehicle that was used in a scene, or a painting, or whatever. And you're like, what? <laughs> Why would you pay that? And man, they did. So thus, it is worth that. Understand that, the idea that value is assigned only. You could have something that you think is value. <laughs> I may, th- may have thought that that penny was going to be our key to financial security for the rest of our future. Eh, no, no. There's so many things in this life, but... Holding on to this life, searching, finding meaning and purpose, value in this life and the things it has to offer are worthless. 
in comparison. And see, what we see here, or what we should see here, again, bringing all the way down because he, as he began in, in the previous passage, talking about his journey to the cross and his mission, and as he expounds upon it, as he calls us to journey and follow him, that we understand that he was willing to pay. He was going to pay. He was going to go buy something. That's part of what he was doing. He was going to purchase himself. He's going to get himself a special treasure. It was you. It was me. It was everyone who may be sitting out there watching right now. That's what he was doing. The cost? Everything he had. Every drop of blood in his body. He was willing to pay it. Not grudgingly. (laughs) Not reluctantly. Passionately. That's why we call it the passion of the Christ. He's passionate to go to the cross. Passionate to win you back. Through his sacrifice. Through his death. And is that same passion, that same determination that he calls us to, to live with, to journey with. And is that way that we can let go of this life and the things of this world to be able to receive the things that are eternal. Many of, many of you know this quote by Jim Elliot, who died in Ecuador in his attempt to share the gospel with the Aka Indians. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. That is what we have when we trust Christ and we follow him. We have that which we cannot lose. So why not give up that which we cannot keep? It's a bold statement. But we have a bold Lord. And he asks us only to follow in his footsteps. Now that's a great place to end, but we have just a little bit more. <laughs> Two more verses. And what I see here, the, the part of this passage, it's maybe not the, the best. I saw the... the, the yeah, is first was the, the calling of the cross. You see the cost of the cross, and then I come, this is, I feel awkward, but I couldn't come up with any other word. It was the consequence of the cross. I don't really like it because consequence usually has such a negative aspect to it. Consequences. But there is a consequence to every decision. Not necessarily bad consequences all the time. They're just results. There are good and bad results. And we see here is there are results to accepting or rejecting the gospel. There are good and bad consequences, results to accepting or rejecting Christ. And Jesus says here at the end of his statement here, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... 
of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory with his Father, with the holy angels. There is a consequence for being ashamed of Jesus. It's interesting when he says, in this sinful, adulterous generation, you're going to be embarrassed and ashamed of me and what I've said? Sometimes I wonder, was it worse then? We look around here and it's like, man, it's hard to imagine anything worse. But Then again, sometimes you peer back into history and what things were going on there. It's like, oof, maybe we're just catching up to where they were at. But all that's going on, all that's being taught, all that's being promoted in this world, in my words, my teaching, my actions, you're going to be ashamed of? Really? <laughs> but sometimes it is. And we, again, spoiler alert, we know Peter. He won't go there. But how often we're like him. There's opportunities to share, opportunities to voice, opportunities to, to bear the name of Christ boldly, publicly. And sometimes we falter. We let the moment go by. I know it works sometimes. There, there's times I always wonder, should I be bolder? And sometimes I do. I, I, do I say as much as I should? Sometimes I let moments go by. I think, why did I do that? But then there's other times where we can in small ways. I share the message of Christ. I say this only as an encouragement not to, uh, and to you, but not to myself. The, the other day at Friday, you know, the guys at work, you know, there's a phrase you hear often in, among guys, you know, what's the good word? What's the word? I try to take the update. Christ is the word. Jesus saves. That's the good word. I was like, they never know what to say to me. It's actually, it's actually encouraging to be able to say that because it stubs them right in the tracks. They don't know how to respond to that. It's like, it's like throwing a cold, cold bucket of water on someone. Like, yeah, I guess he does, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Sometimes it can be that simple, that quick, to get someone to think. But it's interesting what the Lord says. If you're ashamed of me, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you. Now, I don't think this is a patch of saying you will about, about salvation. Now, there's a part of that there for those who reject the message outright, but for those who accept it and falter, I don't think there's anything here that would say that there's a loss of salvation in the failing. Disappointment? Yeah. I think that's what some of those tears in heaven are going to be that he wipes away when we realize that areas, moments, times that we disappointed, that we didn't live up to what he called us to. But again, thankful he's going to wipe away those tears. Because I don't know about you, I'm going to have a lot. <laughs> but no. 
there will be disappointment. But Olivia doesn't leave it there. That's why in verse 9, it's still one of those head scratchers. Why is, you know, the first verse of 9 not, ta- <laughs> why did they put it into the next chapter? Again, I think most of you know that these things were, were done afterwards. These divisions, chapters, verses. I don't know if maybe they did that just to show what takes place and tie it in. We'll get there the next time. I think really this Lord's statement in, in verse 1 of chapter 9 is his finishing statement at this moment. There was no pause or, or later statement. Verse 9, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. There is a reward. There is a reward for walking the road for journeying with the Lord in this life. As I said, not all consequences are bad. I said, have you ever been in the mountains? Been hiking up on mountains? I have a couple times. Nothing major. I haven't like gone up, you know, you know, Mount Hood or anything to that extent. It's my opportunity to be in the in Glacier National Park and out on the east coast of New Hampshire. Some different mountains. Was it easy? Was the, was the road up easy? No, I said, no, it never is, is it? It's hard. The one we, I went up with my brother in New Hampshire, we thought we were going up, we looked at the wrong page, we thought we were going up the moderate trail. It turned out to be the expert. <laughs> Which I'm kind of glad for, because my pride would have been pricked if, my, if I would have been that sore after going up a moderate trail. At least I had that going for me. I was completely sore and destroyed, but it was the expert. <laughs> I was wiped out. But the view was amazing. Nothing to get in your view. All around, you could see all the other mountain ranges. You could look down and see where you were, where we started. It's breathtaking exhilarating. You just wanted to sit up there and just drink it all in. We use that term in Christianity and maybe others use it, that mountaintop experience. And following the Lord, there are those mountaintop experiences where we go through the difficulty, we trudge our way through the valleys and the, 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 the swamps and you reach the peak and you're just in awe. Most of the time you're in awe because you realize what the Lord did to get you <laughs> to the mountaintop. And it's breathtaking. Like I said, no one said it would be easy. The Lord certainly didn't say it was going to be easy. He just said it was worth it. <laughs> because you were worth it. This entire world was worth it. And that is the God we serve. That is the God we celebrate and worship. One last thing I'd like to share is one of my favorite verses. This is another movie quote, I'm sorry. It comes from the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Again, careful. But boy, that term, redemption, Kind of clears you into 
the power that certain stories have because it's our story. And a little backstory, if you don't know, it's, it's a movie set in a prison and ultimately the main character escapes. I'm sorry, spoiler alert. And his best friend eventually gets paroled. And he promised him if it ever happened, he'd come find him. And that's what takes place at the last part of the movie. Morgan Freeman's character decides he's finally going to make good on that promise and find his friend. And one of his last statements that he makes as he gets his bus ticket to get on the journey to go visit him, he says, I can hardly sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it is the feeling only a free man can feel. A free man on the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. That statement impacted me after I got saved because I felt the exact same way. A freed man was on the start of a journey who I didn't know how it was going to end. I don't mean salvation. I don't mean eternity. I don't know how that's going to end in glory. But how this life is going to play out. And it was exciting. A little scary exciting and that is the journey and that is the calling that our Lord calls us to let's pray gracious Heavenly Father we do come before you to praise you and honor you for the God that you are and the God and the mission you call us to the work you call us to we pray that we would boldly answer your call follow you and give you the glory in your name Lord Jesus Amen